Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the theme for this year's FHS annual meeting and symposium is Countdown to History, Ice Age to the Space Age. We're not doing any field work there right now, but I'm looking forward to you know being back in the area and, and seeing some of the folks. I'm sure some of the folks who worked on the crew will be you know coming to the talk as well. We'll discuss the Fort Dade papers from the Second Seminole War. We're scanning a lot of these documents in high-resolution format, and we'll eventually make them available in, in either an exhibit form or at least through our card catalog system online. And we'll visit the historic African-American communities of Goldsboro and Georgetown. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The 2019 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium is being held May 16th through 18th at the Radisson Resort at the Port in Cape Canaveral. The theme of the conference is Countdown to History, Ice Age to the Space Age. Dozens of presenters will discuss a wide range of Florida history topics, including cultural interpretations of 19th century Florida, archives and digital history, Florida on the international stage, environment and agriculture, the golden years of Florida surfing, and many others. Tours will be featured including the Kennedy Space Center, the Library of Florida History, the Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Cultural Complex, and the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. One of the featured speakers is Glenn Doran, principal archaeologist of the Windover Dig. It definitely became a big part of my life, and it literally, as so often happens with archaeologists, started with a phone call. One of the landowners or the people who was working for you know, EKS called the university and said, do you have anybody who's interested in looking at this archaeological site? You know, we've got some human skeletal material down here. And they ultimately called the anthropology department, and it just happened to be a perfect setup for me. You know, I was both an archaeologist and had a strong interest in skeletal material, so it was sort of like slid across the table on a golden platter. And, you know, I've often told people I'm the luckiest archaeologist you'll ever meet because everything just lined up perfectly. Not only, you know, a spectacular site, but a landowner who was interested in what was out there and had the simple question of, you know, what is it? What's going on? How old it is? And those were all things that, you know, just fell into place. And, you know, it was older than anybody guessed. And that's part of what makes, you know, Wendover, you know, very, very special. The initial discovery of ancient skeletons in North Brevard County was made in 1982 by a construction worker clearing away muck to build a new housing development. Glenn Doran says there were many challenges to excavating the site. Well, if you go to any little pond in central Florida and you've got a few alligators, a lot of mosquitoes and, you know, say four to five feet of water. And that's a good place to start with problems. 
Uh, so we, we worked on the, the little small sandy hammock next to it while we sorted out some ways of doing this. And again, EKS was instrumental in working with the contractors and uh, you know, Thompson Pump and Manufacturing out of Port Orange that said, we think we can dewater this enough to let you guys get in and excavate you know, what basically is the bottom of the pond. Uh, and it, it worked superbly. And there's only a handful of sites in this country where they've had to dewater places like that to allow the archaeologists to get in. So, you know, the water issue was, was one of the very first issues you had to overcome. The effort was worth it, though. 168 ancient human burials were discovered at Windover. The remarkably well-preserved remains were between 7,000 and 8,000 years old. The anaerobic environment preserved more than skeletal material. 91 of the skulls contained intact brain matter. Tools and fabric were also found, changing our perceptions of Paleo-Indian culture. Windover has a spectacular array of handwoven fabrics. And in the typical site, you know, Mission San Luis, you know, Wakulla Springs, any of these places you want to go, usually the organic materials, the bone, the antler, the wood, the fabric materials just don't survive. So people have sort of ignored the fact that there's this whole world of organic inventory that was part and parcel of everyday life. If you were here 7,000, 8,000, you know, 10,000, 14,000. And that disappears in normal archeological sites. It's only where you have this either unique set of really, really wet and saturated soils that stay wet, or in some desert sites out in the Southwest and in the Atacama Basin where things go into a little rock shelter or a cave and they just sit there and they preserve surprisingly well. So you get this incredible inventory that is very different from uh, what you see in most archeological sites. And in fact, I think we have four bifaces or projectile points from Wendover. And that's really all that would be preserved in a normal archeological site in Florida. All the organics, the bone tools, the antler tools, the, the dental tools, fabric materials, all that stuff would just disappear probably within you know, 30 or 40 years in normal circumstances. So it's, it's sort of like opening the window of time and seeing what is really there. Tools and animal bone artifacts from Windover are on display at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science, where conference attendees will take a tour. The event will be a homecoming of sorts for Glenn Doran. I'm looking forward to you know, being back in the area and, and seeing some of the folks. I'm sure some of the folks who worked on the crew will be you know, coming to the talk as well. You know, one of the things that, that made this work particularly satisfying to, to us was the level of community support. You know, at any time you had 10 or 11, 12 volunteers out there, and these were people who came out, you know, virtually every day and did whatever you ask, you know, water screen, carry garbage, you know, empty, you know, pickle barrels full of peat, you name it, uh, had really great level of community involvement. Bill Gary is president of the Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Cultural Complex, where attendees of the Florida Historical Society Conference will also take a tour. On Christmas night 1951, a bomb exploded under the Moore's home, making them the first martyrs of the contemporary civil rights movement. As Bill Gary explains, Harry T. Moore was an educator and civil rights activist who traveled throughout the state registering African Americans to vote. 
Harry Moore, of course, being an educated person, an educated man, knew that power lay in the ballot box. And one of the ways, if you cannot elect a person like yourself, then you try to use your voting power to vote for those persons who at least express some interest in your concerns. And so he and uh, his good friend Ed Davis uh, formed the Progressive Voters League, uh, I believe in 1944, and they went about the state. That was a separate, of course, now uh, at this time, Harry Moore had already established uh, the Bavard County branch of the NAACP and had established other branches throughout the state. But the NAACP is nonpartisan. So they established this Progressive Voters League as a separate organization that strictly was devoted to registering uh, black voters and getting them to vote. And, and they went about doing that over the next seven years or so. The records say that they registered some 116,000 people. Bill Gary's work at the Moore Cultural Complex since the 1980s has earned him the Florida Historical Society's Lifetime Achievement Award. The cultural complex includes a civil rights museum, a reflecting pool, and a replica of the Moore family home. It was very gratifying for Gary that the Moore's daughter Evangeline lived to see her childhood home reconstructed after being destroyed by domestic terrorists. It was, Ben. It was um, actually a, a tear-jerking type uh, event because uh, once the house was completed and we had everything in here, we gave her a private tour before we had the ribbon cutting for it. And the thing that she said, which, you know, touched me so much, was that I'm finally home. Because prior to that, she had no home to go back to. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, her home was bombed in 1951, uh, was never rebuilt. Uh, she left and for many years never even came back to Florida. The 50th anniversary of the first manned mission to the moon is another focal point of the upcoming Florida Historical Society annual meeting and symposium. Historian Lori Walters from the University of Central Florida is a featured presenter. Project Mercury is, is designed to get an American into, into space. And then uh, Project Gemini is there to provide all the links that, that we need, you know, to, to prove that can a, can a human being last 14 days in, in a tin can orbiting the Earth? Uh, can we have rendezvous? Can there be a spacewalk? And, and all these things that we have to prove in order to, to ultimately land a man on the moon, Project Gemini does that. And then running alongside that, obviously, is, is Apollo. You know, when Kennedy gives his lunar pledge in, in 1961, you know, shortly after, Alan Shepard, you know, has 15 minutes and like uh, 23 seconds in, in space, um, suborbital flight, um, Kennedy comes out and says, you know, I believe that this nation shall in itself achieve and go before this decade is out, a landing man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. So here we are, May of 1961, and we're going to accomplish this by 1969. Many of the things that, that you need aren't even developed yet the technologies. They're not even developed yet. Saturn V isn't developed yet. This time, there's still, you know, there's Saturn One, you know, because there's a famous photograph of, of just prior to Kennedy's assassination. He's out here, um, and he's looking up with Werner von Braun at, at the Saturn One, but Saturn V doesn't exist yet. And so the, the very craft that you need, the Apollo craft itself, and the very, the, the booster, they don't even exist yet. So yeah, you know, there's was, there was quite a sense of urgency. 
Lori Walters will be moderating a conversation with Apollo-era space workers, including Al Kohler, Bill Heink, and John Tribe, who rose to the challenge of President Kennedy's declaration. I guess I thought what all the people I know thought. Where did that come from and how are we going to do that? Wow, what a major step forward. But it was the single unifying, compelling mission for NASA and the nation and the free world. I thought it was amazing, and I'll be honest, I still get goosebumps every time I hear recordings of that speech. It was such a, an incredible attempt. I mean, it was far beyond what anybody thought we could do, and yet we turned around and did it. And the announcement itself was not that much of a shock. You know, yeah, you know, we all in intended sooner or later we were going to go to the moon. But the, uh, the pronouncement that we're going to do it before 1970, was, how the hell are we going to do that? You know, it's, uh, we've just barely got a, a foot in the door here. At the FHS conference banquet, astronaut Winston Scott will help to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. I remember sitting in front of my television watching those old grainy pictures come about when Neil Armstrong first stepped on the moon. I was actually home, I was a freshman in college. I was 18 years old, uh, 17, almost 18 years old. Anyway, I, I remember when it happened, I was sitting in the living room watching the television pictures along with millions of other people around the world. And I can remember again how exciting that was. Winston Scott will discuss his own experiences in space and look to the future. I can imagine what it would be like to feel the first crew going off to Mars. Now that would be cool because you kind of, sort of, maybe know objectively what's going to happen, but you don't really know because nobody's done it before. I do think it is important that we continue to explore. That's what we were meant to do as human beings. And uh, we ought not to let anything get in our way of pushing the boundaries to continue to explore in every way that we can. The 2019 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium is being held May 16th through 18th at the Radisson Resort at the Port in Cape Canaveral. The theme of the conference is Countdown to History, Ice Age to the Space Age. Conference registration and discounted hotel reservations are at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. <laughs> Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, the Second Seminole War is known as the longest and costliest Indian conflict in U.S. history, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben, and it's often forgotten probably by most contemporary Floridians, but it was a major part of Florida's history and actually a big part of national history in the mid-19th century. Now, the war lasted from approximately December of 1835 until 1842, so about a seven-year conflict on and off, skirmishes throughout the entire state. And what's important is that the U.S. government expended massive amounts of men, material, and supplies to try and remove a relatively 
small group of Seminole and Miccosukee Indians out to the Oklahoma territories. And many of them did eventually emigrate by 1842. Uh, A number of them stayed behind, however, moved into the Everglades, what would become the Everglades National Park, and sort of eked out a living for the rest of the 19th century. And they are the ancestors of the present-day Seminole and Miccosukee tribes. But during the Second Seminole War, it was a really hard-fought conflict. Um, There were very few pitched battles. A lot of the fighting really had to do with provisions, burning of crops, destruction of bridges, infrastructure issues. It was kind of a back and forth. The fighting really happened like like two ships passing through the night. That's probably the best way to describe the Second Seminole War. You would uh, often have the U.S. government build a bridge or a fort, and then at night or, or during the off-season, the Seminoles would come in, destroy the fort. The U.S. government would destroy their crops. They would grow their crops again. It was just sort of back and forth volley uh, over the course of that seven-year period between 1835 and 1842. Now, you have here from the Library of Florida History Archive some official military documents from Fort Dade. What we're looking at are mostly requisition and and quartermaster documents. They are abstracts of provisions. They're kind of your day-to-day documents that the quartermaster would have been providing to the commanding officer at Fort Dade. Now, Fort Dade was important. It was along the Fort King Road. Now, in 1835, a gentleman by the name of Major Francis Dade was ambushed by a group of Seminole Indians in December of 1835 along that Fort King Road traveling from Fort Brook to Fort King near present-day Ocala. So moving from Tampa to Ocala, he was ambushed about halfway along that route in December of 1835. A year later, uh, General Sidney Jessup, who was commanding officer of U.S. forces in Florida, decided to construct a fort in his honor, and he named it Fort Dade. And it was built right on the big Withlacoochee River, and they built a bridge to cross the Withlacoochee, and then they built this fort in, started in December of 1836 and, and really finished it by January of 1837. Jessup actually set up his headquarters there in, in 1837. So it was a small, mostly um, earthen mound breastworks. They used the available supplies uh, of timber that were around. And you can see in these documents the provisions that were coming from Fort Brook, usually from by boat. They were coming into Tampa Bay offloaded at Fort Brooke and then brought along the Fort King Road to this, essentially it was a frontier outpost. So they were far away from any other federal or really any kind of civilized cities or anything like that. They were, they were in the middle of nowhere, in the Florida wilderness, in the frontier. And you can see, as indicated in a lot of these documents here that we're looking at, the first one is actually a series of receipts. So the federal government, as they do now, contracted private citizens to provide services. So the, the, usually the federal government would build the fort but they had to be provisioned by wagon trains and things like that. But remember, too, that the U.S. Army survived off of cattle and beef and things like that. So they had to buy beef from local cattlemen in Florida. And we're actually looking at receipts for, um, this is a man named Stephen Watts, who must have been a cattleman at that time, probably was just a young man. And he was actually hired as a cattle guard and paid for the 10th of January to the 30th of February, 1838, in the amount of $4.80 to guard the cattle which was a, a really a serious job because the Seminole Indians would come in, steal the cattle, steal horses. That was fairly common. Another document we're looking at, which I think is very interesting, is a abstract of provisions used at Fort Dade for the hospital. And it lists all of the supplies that would have been provided simply for the hospital care for the soldiers and folks who were at Fort Dade. What's interesting here, you'll see it includes on the list, there's one woman. So we don't know if that was the wife of one of the officers who was possibly here, maybe a local resident, someone who was inferred at the hospital there. 
You'll see here some of the supplies include pickled onions. We have candles, soap, salts, rice, coffee, but also whiskey, uh, which I, I'm guessing they, they probably assumed was a, a cure for many ills at that time period. So it's really an interesting compilation of documents. But what we don't see here are your standard narrative accounts, which one would often look to first to kind of get a feel for what that experience was like. But there's a lot of information we can glean from these documents. Absolutely. And they're really fascinating to look at. And, and you're working to make these documents more accessible to the public through digitization, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. So we're scanning a lot of these documents in high-resolution format, and we'll eventually make them available in, in either an exhibit form or at least through our card catalog system online. But we're taking that a step forward. So we're taking all of this statistical information, so the the pounds of beef and, and the bushels of, of hay and corn and all of these supplies, we're actually compiling that into like an Excel spreadsheet. So you can actually start comparing, statistically comparing what was being expended at this one particular fort for a very short amount of time. We're only talking about between January of 1838 and the summer of 1838 when the fort was abandoned for the what they called the sick period during the summer. They would abandon the fort. It was burned by the Seminole Indians, was rebuilt in 1838 briefly occupied off and on until 1842, and then abandoned. So we don't really, this is a, a really rare glimpse into the day-to-day -day operations of a fort. So we're going to try and, and compile all that information into a digital format that can then be used as kind of an analysis of, of the day-to-day -day operations, compare it to other forts, campaigns, and operations throughout the country, and, and give us a better idea of where the Florida War or the Second Seminole War kind of fits into broader U.S. military history. Interesting as always. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see some of the Fort Dade papers we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Eatonville is the oldest incorporated African-American municipality in the United States. Central Florida is also home to the second oldest. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. The city of Sanford, Florida began in 1870 when Henry Sanford purchased more than 12,000 acres of land in Central Florida and founded the town. I recently talked to historic preservation and community planning specialist Christine Dalton about two of Sanford's historic African-American communities, Goldsboro and Georgetown. We have two historically African-American neighborhoods in our town. One is Georgetown, that's on the east side of Sanford Avenue, and one is Goldsboro, and that's west of French Avenue. Both of those neighborhoods are pretty distinct and unique in their own right. Georgetown was settled by African-Americans in Sanford who Henry Sanford had actually set land aside for them to have businesses and homes in that part of town. Goldsboro was actually its own independent entity. So Goldsboro was the second oldest incorporated municipality, African-American municipality in the United States, second to Eatonville. Eatonville was first. On December 1st, 1891, William Clark, an African-American store owner, along with 19 other black registered voters, established the town of Goldsboro. Soon after Goldsboro was incorporated, the community opened a school, established a post office, and built a church. The town of Goldsboro had a short existence. In 1911, the community was annexed into Sanford, Florida. Christine Dalton. 
about 20 years after Goldsboro was a city, Sanford was wanting to push its boundaries south and west. And what happened was the charter for Goldsboro and the proposed charter for Sanford Height were dissolved and one new charter created for a large city that actually took over the land of what was proposed to be the city of Sanford Heights and took over the land of what was the city of Goldsboro. In 2009, a second-generation Goldsboro resident, Francis Oliver, and a group of leaders from the community created the Goldsboro Westside Community Historical Association, Inc., in order to celebrate and preserve the history of Goldsboro. Community members donated pictures, artifacts, and documents, and in 2011, the Goldsboro Museum was born. Christine Dalton. The location of the Goldsboro Historical Museum is actually the site of the first post office in Goldsboro, and that building that's there is on the site of one of the original structures in Goldsboro. There was a small wood frame building, it was a home. And that home was the home of the postmaster when Goldsboro was incorporated and got its own post office. The home of the postmaster was there. So that location where the Goldsboro Historical Museum is today, present day, is actually the location where the city of Goldsboro was formed. It's where they took the vote and actually created the city of Goldsboro that operated as a city for 20 years. Another African-American community in Sanford, Georgetown, was established in 1870. Located east of Sanford Avenue and north of Celery Avenue, Georgetown consisted of several businesses, churches, and schools that were operated by African-Americans. Georgetown was also home to Hopper Academy, the first African-American school in Sanford. Established in 1886, the school was originally named Colored School No. 11. The Hopper Academy was the school, first school for African Americans in Seminole County that was higher education. So Hopper Academy is in Georgetown and the building is still there. Jan Crims, who's a prominent African American Florida educator, actually was the principal of Hopper Academy and wanted to see classes go beyond the grade level that Hopper Academy went up to. And so actually I founded Crooms Academy over in Goldsboro. So we have two really important schools with African-American connection in Sanford. The city of Sanford keeps the histories of Goldsboro and Georgetown alive through Pathways to History, a series of walking and driving tours that highlight the history and heritage of Sanford. Pathways to History is a series of thematic tours that tell the history of Sanford's development and its, the development of its neighborhoods. So two of the brochures that we have are the Georgetown Walking Driving Tour brochure and the Goldsboro Walking Driving Tour brochure. Each one of those brochures was created with a Heritage Advisory Committee. So members of the community who had lived in the community most of their life, most of the committee members were long time or from birth Sanfordites. And they wrote the stories that went into those brochures. They gave us the history and we just fact check things like dates and addresses and all of that. But the creation of those brochures really came from a series of oral history sessions where we just sat down with the residents and heard their stories about what was it like to shop on Sanford Avenue? And what businesses did you like to go to? What was historic Goldsboro Boulevard like? What was Goldsboro like in general? What streets did you play on when you were a child? And what are your favorite memories? So those tour brochures were really born from these oral history discussions that we had. To learn more about Pathways to History and the communities of Goldsboro and Georgetown, 
visit www.samfordfl.gov. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to register for the 2019 Annual Meeting and Symposium in Cape Canaveral. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.